right, well, good morning, everyone. Great to see you. If you have your Bible with you, would love for you to open it now to Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. Acts 6, 1 to 7. That's on page 914 in your pew Bibles. Uh, we've been doing a slow walk for the last uh, several weeks, and I guess uh, several months now, through the book of Acts as we reevaluate everything we think we know about church. These stories, of course, have been carefully selected. Luke is a historian, so uh, he had a front row seat. You probably noticed that at some points as you're reading through the book of Acts, uh, all of a sudden the narrative kind of switches into third person, or sorry, first person plural. He'll say, you know, we got on board the ship and we went here. So Luke actually was a participant in some of the stories that we're reading. But then he also says that he interviewed a number of sources. Church history uh, actually says that Luke interviewed Mary, the, the mother of Jesus. That's why you get some of those wonderful um, childhood narratives in Luke's gospel, for example. But he went around and interviewed different people and so had a whole bunch of stories. And then, of course, there has to be some selection. Any historian has to decide which of these events are significant, which of these events are really just sort of saying something we've already learned before and so we can maybe skip it and save time for something else. I don't, this is a total Bible geek moment, but this is fun. You should know this. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but, but the, the Gospel of Luke and Acts of the Apostles are about the same size in terms of word count, and it's probably for the very mundane reason that Luke, uh, either himself or his scribe, bought two scrolls the same size, like how you go to Walmart and you get a pack of socks the same size. And, uh, and so those two books are exactly, or more or less, very, very similar in terms of word count. Uh, that was probably more than you wanted to know, but that deeply spoke to my heart, and so I wanted to share that with you. Anyway, the point is, uh, stories have to be selected when you've only got so much scroll to work with. And so we're wondering this morning why this story was selected, because it does feel like an odd transition from the heights of Acts 4 and 5. In Acts 4 and 5, um, it's, it's thunderous, it's, it's stirring, it's moving, it's all about the Holy Spirit, it's about the church stepping out in obedience and, and the Holy Spirit meeting them in that place of obedience and empowering them. Last week we talked about how really at the end of the day it, doesn't, it almost doesn't matter what we do because it's all about the Holy Spirit of God. Can you say amen to that? Amen. And then now you have a transition into an extended discussion about growth management strategies which seems like an odd transition. Uh, as I mentioned, there's a bit of a, a spiral effect here. Uh, we, we're left with the impression at the end of Acts chapter 5 that every time you step out in faith, the Holy Spirit meets you with further grace and empowering, such that you, you kind of go to the next level. Well, if you do that a couple times, then pretty soon you've experienced explosive growth. Now, how are you going to deal with that? That's the question that we're looking at. How are, how are you going to deal with that? Now, to be clear, that's a wonderful problem to have. Growth is wonderful, but growth is complicated. And so here we have in this story a number of principles illustrating how the early church responded to that growth and managed that growth in a way that pleased the Lord. So hear now the word of the Lord beginning at verse 1, Acts 6, 1 to 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. 
Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they sat before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, as I mentioned, if you've been tracking with us for the last couple of weeks, this passage does feel like a bit of an odd departure. In Acts 5, we've got these these great spiritual truths being unpacked, and now here uh, we have a narrative about institutional change, institutional structure. That seems odd to us. But should it feel odd to us? Is good leadership unspiritual? Is good structure unspiritual? No, of course not. Just like our bodies, our bone and spirit, so too the church. And as we know in our bodies, sometimes when there's a problem in the bones, it affects how we feel in our spirit, doesn't it? Well, obviously so too in the church. And so it's actually very like the Bible. Sometimes I feel like the Bible is almost a rebuke to our over-spirituality, or maybe I'd better to say our hyper-spirituality. I always feel this way when I read through the book of Nehemiah, right? In the book of Nehemiah, it's that wonderful depiction of spirituality and practicality hand in hand. You know, they prayed and set a guard. They didn't see praying. You know, they weren't so hyper-spiritual. They're like, well, we've prayed, so now we don't need to set a guard. It's like, no, you should probably set a guard. But you should also pray. These things are not opponents of one another. In fact, in in the healthiest communities, they go together. And so it's very much like the Bible to follow up a chapter on the Holy Spirit with a chapter on leadership and structure. And that's what we have here. In this short little passage, I think we can very easily identify five helpful principles for managing growth as a church. The first one is this. Diversity is beautiful but complicated. As the church grew, it became more diverse. If you go back to the very start of the story, and we're not so far into the book of Acts that you couldn't just turn over two pages and see it. If you go look, for example, at Acts 1.15, you'll notice that we're, we're told that the, that the church at the very start of the story was only 120 people large. That's not a very big church. Uh, that's probably that section right there. Uh, And not only were they not a very big church, but they weren't a very diverse church. The church at that time was mostly the apostles, their wives and children, maybe uh, an in-law, maybe a mom, maybe a a, a widow, we're not sure, but it was mostly their family. The, The leadership of the church would have been those young men, probably between the ages of 18 and 30. They all knew each other. If you're a close reader of the Gospels, you've noticed that half of the disciples are related to each other. So it was almost like an extended family gathering. It was arguably the least diverse church in the history of the universe. And then Pentecost happened. The Holy Spirit fell on them. 
They all started speaking languages that they did not previously know. They ran out into the street, started preaching the gospel to pilgrims that had come from all over the Mediterranean world. And according to Acts 2, about 3,000 people converted and joined the church. Now think about that for a second. We're so used to these stories that we're not impacted by some of the details A church of 120, which was basically an extended family, is now all of a sudden responsible for caring for a megachurch-sized congregation made up mostly of Greek-speaking Jews from all over the Roman world. That's a big problem. It's a wonderful problem, but it's a big problem. Not only did those people convert, but according to this story, many of them stayed in the city. That's what created this logistical issue that they have to solve here. The text says that a complaint arose from among the Hellenists. Uh, That's a word we probably don't use uh, a whole lot. Maybe you remember Helen of Troy. The word Hellenists means Greek-speaking, Greek-speaking people. And so these Greek-speaking people were Jews from the the wider empire. Uh, Greek was the language of the wider empire. It was the language of commerce, the language of of culture, etc., Uh, And then Jews within their own locality, so within Galilee and Jerusalem, would speak a a dialect of of Hebrew. But if you were from outside of that area, then you probably spoke Hebrew about as well as a 13-year-old boy in New York on the eve of his bar mitzvah. Uh, It it was not your mother tongue. Uh, You could say a few scripture verses, but that's about it. And so the problem was that we've got all these Greek-speaking Jews who've kind of plunked down in Jerusalem. And of course, they had to because it was the only church they could go to. You understand, we're so early on in the story that it's not like they could just go back to Rome or Athens or Parthia or wherever they were from and join a local church there. There were no local churches there. So if you wanted to grow in your faith, if you wanted to hear the Bible preach, if you wanted to hear about Jesus, you had to stay in Jerusalem, and many of them did. And so now we got a language issue right? These, these folks who've stayed, they, they, they don't speak the local language, so they can't just pick up their, their work, their occupations here. So we got this huge cluster of people who don't speak the local language, who are basically unemployable, but who have to eat still every day. So that's the issue. So a huge food distribution ministry sprung up basically overnight. It was funded by crazy generous giving. We talked about that in Acts 4. But then again, eventually the language barrier became a real issue. Greek-speaking families were having a hard time making their needs known, and Hebrew-speaking leaders were having a hard time understanding those needs, and so growth stalled, and fractures began to emerge. That's what the story's about. Now, notice what they didn't do. They didn't divide the church into two churches, a, a Greek church and a Hebrew church. Rather, the solution was to develop new leadership structures. Obviously, the church appreciated the beauty and importance of diversity. I wonder sometimes if we do as Christians. Very often, pragmatism seems much more attractive to us than diversity. There is nothing easier than running and managing and growing a monolithic church. Uh, Many of you know I started out in the seeker church movement in the 19. 90s, the church I worked in, uh, we didn't hide it. Like, this is not something we whispered in the staff room. Like, this was our vision. We, uh, we self-identified as a church for baby boomers and their children. And it was so easy because then you didn't have to fight the worship wars. Do you remember the worship wars in the 90s? 
Anybody live through the worship wars? Do you ever get together and tell your stories and show your scars? I had to sing praise choruses through the 80s, right? We were all there. But it's so much, so much easier, right, when you don't have to play that game. Uh, we didn't. We, we just sang the songs that baby boomers liked. And we didn't have to run a whole bunch of different programs. We just ran programs that baby boomers liked and that their kids liked. It was so easy. But it was warped, and it was wrong, and it was weak, and it died. Praise the Lord. Because God didn't call us to easy. God called us to beautiful. The church is supposed to be the most diverse gathering of people in your community on any given day. This, this church should be. Now, you can only be as diverse as your community, right? Right? The church is supposed to be the most diverse gathering in your community every week. Old people, young people, rich people, poor people, men, women, boys, girls, white, black, Gentile, Jew. That's the call. Listen, this text is reminding us that diversity is not optional. Diversity is worth fighting for. It's a foundational value. It's complicated, of course, but it is beautiful, and it's biblical, and that's why we see the leadership of this church doing everything they can to maintain it, and we need to pay attention to that. Brothers and sisters, I'm sure uh, one of the things you know, it's, it's one of the things that folks in this town now talk about all the time, you know there's a change happening in the world. It was already going on before COVID, but COVID certainly uh, expedited the change, now, with uh, technology being different, with workplace culture being changed by the pandemic, it seems like everyone is moving out of Toronto to smaller towns, smaller towns with good internet that are still within an hour, an hour and 15 minutes of the airport. Uh, and workplace culture now is such that most companies will say, hey, listen, if you can be in the office two, maybe three, if we need you three days a week, the rest of the time you can work from home. Well, all of a sudden, you know exactly what that means. It means everyone and their brother is moving to Aurelia. <laughs> are you ready for that? Are you ready to make structural changes to welcome and accommodate newcomers Newcomers who aren't related to you. One of the things we love joking about in this church is you've got to be careful what you say about anybody in the lobby because everyone in this church is related to somebody else, right? Half the people in this church are related to everyone else, right? You've got to be careful what you say about Shells Wells in this church, amen? If you have a thought on Shells Wells or Langmans or Coopers, you keep that to yourself. We could do a quick show of hands if you're not related to one of those three families, but I don't think anyone would fit into that category. Right? So you, you've got to be careful. What about when our church starts getting filled with folks from somewhere else, right? Folks who maybe don't look like you, folks who maybe don't talk like you, folks who aren't related to the same people you're related to. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the day when Cornerstone Baptist Church has an all-nations pastor or a new Canadians outreach committee? That's a terrible name. We'll have to come up with something better, but you get the idea. Are you ready for that? Diversity is complicated, but it is beautiful and biblical. So by the grace of God, we're going to go for it. By the grace of God, we're going to do it. And that's going to be part of our witness to the world. Think about it. Where I was talking to my, uh, I've got a variety of kids. My house is a study in diversity because we got kids from 
25 down to 11. Uh, but it was interesting. I was talking to some of my older kids, and we were talking about how, you know, the church really is the only place where young people their age, sort of early 20s, interact with older people. They were actually saying being, a, being raised in the church has given them a huge edge on their peers because they grew up talking to old, older people. They said old people. I didn't want to offend you with that. But they said, you know, we grew up talking to old people. We know how to do it. It doesn't freak us out. But they said, you know, we're in school. We're competing in the marketplace with young people who have never talked to anyone other than their parents and their peers. I mean, the church is magic. And, and part of our witness is that, look, just take a minute for a second and look around this room. Where else could you go and find young people, old people, rich people, poor people, like, people from every strata of society interacting together, and, and all of those boundaries just become a little less meaningful for the two hours that we're in this room together. It's an incredible phenomenon, and we need to actually heighten that. We need to amplify that. It's part of our witness to the world. And so, of course, just like the early church, as we grow and as diversity increases, we're going to need to be prepared to make structural changes. Second thing we notice in the story is that certain priorities must always be maintained. When the food distribution ministry began to break down due to the complexities we've just discussed, the disciples could have said, let's just forget the whole thing. It's an awful lot of work. It takes a ton of money and a ton of time. Let's just pull the plug. They didn't say that. And neither did they say, all right, fellas, we've got to be all in on this. Everyone needs to buckle down and focus up to get this done. Peter, you'll take the breakfast shift. Andrew, you've got 11Zs. John, you'll do lunch. They didn't say that. Instead, they said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So they said, it's got to get done, but it can't be done by us because we were given a specific task that we need to attend to. We were told to preach the Word. Here's the point. Good leaders fight to maintain proper priorities. You've heard the expression, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Well, in a church of that size, there are a lot of squeaky wheels. And so the apostles understood that if they did not set some boundaries, if they did not establish some priorities, then this benevolence ministry would absolutely consume them. And they knew what that would mean. If, if they allowed this to become the, the dominant focus in their lives, then the church would become a glorified soup kitchen. And soup doesn't save souls. Now, that's not to say that soup doesn't matter. Of course it does. But it isn't ultimate. And what we see the church doing here is, is sorting out front seat and back seat issues. Word ministry and benevolence ministry both belonged in the car, but one has to be in the front seat, and one needs to be in the back seat. And the moment you get that wrong, your church begins to die. A few years ago, R.C. Sproul commented at some length, um, just recently before he died, R.C. Sproul died a few years ago. This was just prior to that. He was talking about the disturbing trend of pastoral resignations. Now, I wasn't just talking about older pastors retiring in, in the normal course of things. 
He was talking about just the strange number of pastors just getting out of the ministry entirely. And he shared his opinion as to why that was. He said, today a minister is expected to be the CEO of a corporation. He's expected to do the administration and the work of development. He's expected to be an expert in counseling and pastoral care. As a result, we've raised up a generation of pastors who are jacks of all trades and masters of none. And one of the reasons why they do not open the Word of God for the congregation on Sunday morning is that they do not know how. They have spent their time learning everything else but the texts of Scripture. According to Sproul, too many pastors are being asked to do too many things, and they are ill-equipped for the one thing that really matters. I think he's right. And to be perfectly honest with you, that is one of the main reasons that I am here. One of the reasons that I took this position was because uh, during the interview process, one of the elders on the search committee said he wanted me to know that in this church, they expect a lead pastor to spend 50% of his time every week on word ministry. Not a lot of churches are saying that. Not a lot of churches were saying that in 2006. I do. I spend, started spending 50%, and actually it's grown more than that. Word ministry is the main focus of what I do. There's the Sunday morning preaching opportunity, uh, Midweek small group this week I'm doing, or this semester I'm doing B1, which is a leadership group. Last week it was, or last semester it was Cornerstone U. And then about five years ago, we stumbled onto another way of doing word ministry through the End of the Word podcast and radio program. In fact, this past week, I just quickly tallied up on the margin of my, of my uh, manuscript here. We, this past week on Wednesday, we recorded seven episodes of Life 100.3. On Friday, I recorded two episodes of Into the Word, so that's up to nine. Ten, the Sunday service. Uh, Eleven, the B1 midweek. That means there are 11 word ministry teaching times this week. And so 50% has become 70%. And the funny thing is, I ask our board of elders on a pretty regular basis, I say, are you guys okay with that? that like, I'm spending like 70% of my time on word ministry now. And every time I ask them that, they say, that's exactly what we want. The word ministry needs to be primary. Everything else needs to support and adorn that. You, I will tell you that I don't have a lot of pastor friends who get that kind of support and direction from their elders. If you like the feel of our church, you should thank an elder today for doing that kind of stuff, for prioritizing that kind of ministry. And by the way, it's not just, the, it's not just me. It's not just the pulpit ministry. Everything we do at, that, uh, at this church reflects those same priorities, Children's ministry, youth ministry, seniors ministry, young, everything is word-based. You know why? Because lots of people can do soup, right? I bet you, in fact, the world does soup better than we do. There's more people out there, right? So somebody's got to have a grandma with the awesome soupest recipe ever. Awesomest, I meant to say, which is also not a word anyway. <laughs> but somebody out there has got to have a better recipe for soup than, than we've got. But you know what we've got that they don't have? We have the ministry of the word and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we've got. And so that's got to be central. And that's why this, this church continues to grow. This church, but also the church that we're looking at here in Acts. Because soup is good, sandwiches are marvelous, but only the Word of God preached, taught, discussed, and applied changes lives. So in a good church, they have that in the front seat. 
And they have all kinds of other stuff worked into the back seat, the trunk, and the roof rack. But the word ministry stays in the front seat. When that happens, churches grow. Those are the two main lessons in this passage, but there are a couple more I want to draw your attention to as well. Third lesson is this. Ecclesiology should be characterized by wisdom and flexibility. And you say, Pastor, that's a big word, ecclesiology. It is a big word, but it's a good word, so you should know what it means. Ecclesiology literally just means what we think about and how we practice church. And the point in this story would seem to be that there is plenty of room for us to be flexible with respect to form. You get the impression in the New Testament that the theology of the church was entirely inflexible. But the methods and the forms were subject to change based on principles of wisdom and prudence. A couple weeks ago, I shared a John Piper quote, but I think I just quoted it from memory. I didn't actually make a slide out of it, so I thought you might want to see that. Uh, In his book on preaching and worship, he says, what we find in the New Testament is a stunning degree of non-specificity. By the way, if you know John Piper, that's a good John Piper phrase, isn't it? I'll read that again. Just can feel the Piper. What we find in the New Testament is a stunning degree of non-specificity for worship as an outward form and a radical intensification of worship as an inward experience of the heart. Now, he says that there with respect to worship forms, but I think exactly the same thing could be said with respect to structural forms. The Bible doesn't say how many committees a good church should have. The Bible does not provide a a, a detailed outline for how to run a congregational meeting. There is a stunning lack of specificity in the Bible with respect to the details of institutional governance. And so we don't need to be dogmatic about such things. In fact, we should not be dogmatic about such things things. Obviously, we need to land somewhere, right? We can't be changing our bylaws every week, so we've got to land somewhere. We've got to run with that for for the sake of order. But we shouldn't be excommunicating other churches who organize differently. And likewise, as we see in this text, we shouldn't be so committed to our preferred forms that we fail to adapt and modify our structures to respond to new challenges and opportunities. It was interesting, in the preaching workshop, somebody asked me at this point, because we, we were going through all the manuscripts that are going to be preached in the various places today, and somebody said, are you turn signaling here, like a change in our bylaws? Are you just trying to like prepare the church for the fact that maybe we're going to adjust? Like our church has lanes, so you know, the pastor has a lane, there's a certain number of things I'm responsible for, the board of elders has a lane, things they're responsible for, and then the congregation has a lane, things that... that you are responsible for collectively as a group of members. And they're like, are you like turn signaling that maybe you want to change your lane and, or change the elder's lane? I said, no, I, I'm not turn signaling that at all. I think our lanes and the distinction of those lanes is one of the best things about our church. What I am saying, though, is we're entering into a gray zone as, as a church, not just our church, Cornerstone, but the church in general. A lot of stuff is changing in the culture. And COVID accelerated those changes. One of, I'll give you a quick example. One of the changes they talked about, there is a mass retirement of pastors coming in the next 10 years. The average, or sorry, the median age of a pastor in North America right now is 58 years old. That's a problem because it means they're all going to be retiring in the next seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years. And those are baby boomers. Those are the young baby boomers. If you know anything about demographics in North America, you know there are nowhere near as many of my generation, Gen Xers, as there were baby boomers. That's why we called them baby boomers, because they just exploded everywhere. There's nowhere, so there's nowhere near as many of us as there are them. So when they are gone, 
Like for every 10 that leave, there's only like six behind. And then the generation behind us, far fewer of what are called the millennials entered into ministry in the first place. Uh, Concerns about work-life balance, some other things, the housing market, changes in the housing market. Those people didn't even enter ministry in the first place. So for the next 20 years, we're going to be dealing with a serious shortage in terms of pastors. So we're going to have to be asking questions like, already this morning, we are ministering in multiple churches in town. On, on many Sundays, we run a workshop out of which we service four or five churches. That's pretty standard stuff. And, and in addition, another change is over the course of COVID, some churches got stronger and other churches got a lot weaker, weaker to the point where they're no longer viable. Rare now is the month that goes by that some church doesn't reach out to me directly or indirectly asking if we'd like to adopt them or, or work with them in some way. You're going to be hearing about that uh, actually over the next couple of months. So we need to be flexible. We, we need to adapt our forms because the next 20 years are going to look a lot different than the last 20 years. And we'd hate to be so committed to our forms that we couldn't respond in such a way as to allow us to be fruitful over the next couple of decades. That's the point we're making here. The reason this church in Acts 6 continued to grow, humanly speaking, was because the apostles were wise enough to realize that the new situation, with the church all of a sudden being much bigger and much more diverse, required some new structures. Up until this point, the 12 had run everything. But now all of a sudden we get the seven. Who are the seven? Sometimes we think of that, this story that we're talking about as the birth of the diaconate, but it isn't. Uh, nowhere is the word deacon used in this story, and in fact, this group looks less like deacons and more like elders. I. Howard Marshall says here, although the verb serve comes from the same root as the noun, which is rendered into English as deacon, it is noteworthy that Luke does not refer to the seven as deacons. Their task had no formal name. The choice of seven men corresponded with Jewish practice in setting up boards of seven men for particular duties. So in Jewish culture, it's pretty typical. You got a new group, you got a new thing, you come up with a board of seven men to run it. This is an oversight board. That's what this is. Their their responsibility is to oversee the money, a task that later in Acts we see associated with the elders as that office began to emerge and crystallize. This was an oversight group. They understood that there were going to be certain ministries that would have to be done in both languages, and they wanted to be flexible enough to respond to that. So they were still one church, but now they had a special oversight ministry to make sure that things were happening in both languages and that everybody was being well served. That's what we've got here. Now, let me ask you a question. Is that commanded in the Bible? Multi-layer oversight, is that commanded in the Bible? Did Jesus say anything about that in the Gospels? Is there some kind of Old Testament precedent we could appeal to? Not really. But there's nothing that forbids that, and doing it reflected principles of wisdom and prudence. Again, on the other side of of Pentecost, with our new hearts, with the Holy Spirit having been poured into us, with the Word of God open before us, with Jesus leading us to the authoritative and accurate interpretation of Scripture, it's almost as if God trusts us to make some of these decisions relating to method and form. Brothers and sisters, if you don't understand that, you will find yourself fighting all manner of holy wars about things that do not ultimately matter could ask for a quick show of hands for people who lived through that reality, but I won't. Let's just not live 
through it again. Churches that grow permit a fair degree of flexibility with respect to form. Fourth thing I think is worth noticing here is that major change requires collaboration between congregants and leaders. The creation of this oversight committee was clearly a collaborative effort between the apostles and the congregation. The apostles identified the need, they established the criteria, and then they said to the congregation, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. That is wise and prudent process. And again, good process is not unspiritual. And I can tell you this from having been in church for a while, bad process will affect your spiritual pretty quick. When leaders are dictatorial, for example, the spirit tends to leave the building in a hurry. That's been my experience. It's one thing to be firm about doctrine, but if you've got a leader who is firm and dictatorial about every manner of external structure and form, then that tends to be a burden to the people and a barrier to the movement of the Holy Spirit. Thank God for leaders who know when to insist and when to include and that's what we see in the story. The apostles say, you know, big picture here. Hey, we need an oversight committee. Got to make sure, obviously, that these folks are saved. We're looking for good people, giving evidence of conversion, who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Obviously, they're going to need some wisdom. You, you all go find some folks like that. Bring them back. We'll pray on them and get this done. That's good process. Any major change on matters of form and structure should be done as a collaborative process between leaders and people. When people are included, they remain invested, and that helps a church grow. The fifth and final thing we should see here in the story is that healthy things freed from obstruction tend to grow. That's kind of the punchline of the story. They encountered a problem due to explosive growth. They were careful to protect their primary mandate. They made a decision based on principles of wisdom and prudence in collaboration with the congregation as a whole, and the Word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Luke is making a not-so-subtle point here. He's saying, you don't have to manufacture growth when it comes to the church of Jesus Christ. Most of the time, you just have to get out of the way. If you're doing what you're told, right? If, if you're preaching the Word, if you're loving one another, then by and large, the church is going to grow. And why wouldn't it? We have the life-giving Word of God, which is sharper than any two-edged sword. We, we have the Holy Spirit who knows how to raise the dead, dig ears, open eyes, so that people can see, hear, and believe that the Christ is Jesus. So all things being equal, brothers and sisters, the church of Jesus Christ is going to grow. So if it doesn't grow, you identify the obstruction and you cast it off. And the church should grow again. Isn't that a wonderful truth to settle under? It means we don't have to be super cool, which is good news, right? The older I get, the more convinced I am that there is likely no one here today who came because they think I'm cool. I'll be honest with you. 17 years ago, I thought there may be a handful of those people. 
I am absolutely convinced there's no one here for that reason this morning. Isn't it good, though, to be able to settle under these truths? We don't have to be cool. We don't have to put on a smoke and light show. We just need to preach the word and build a loving community of people. We need to respond to change and complexity in a prudent and appropriate manner with collaboration. And if we do that, then the Holy Spirit, whom the Lord gives to those who obey him, will take care of the rest. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, how we love your word, how we love your promises. Lord, there is a promise in this passage for us, which is that your Holy Spirit is wanting and is committed and is prepared and is entirely able to do great things through this church. We just need to respond. We need to be obedient. Lord, when there are things for us to do, we need to apply principles of wisdom and prudence. We need to be gracious and humble. We need to talk to each other. We need to listen to each other. But all things being equal, Lord, if we get out of the way and if we do what we're supposed to do, then you are going to do great things in and through us for the glory of Jesus and for the good of this city and for the good of people in every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet Earth. We believe that. We give you thanks for that. We make ourselves available to that, and we do it all in Jesus' name. Amen.